Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Man, we're really sticking with it so far. This is like our third podcast. I'm going to jinx yeah. it, though. You know? I like that three in a row. is. A, I mean, that's what you need to just to establish a pattern. Yeah, right? it's a trend now. Okay, so we are in, uh, we're kind of reflecting on the week as it has just happened. This is, we just got through the third week of the legislative session. And um, the second what, week of the Alaska redistricting lawsuit. Yeah. And you've been wading through that lawsuit. So what's, I, I guess maybe we should start there. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, this week was Marmot Day. Uh, David Eastman was a hot topic. Um, the the work in the Capitol building ground to a halt because of COVID. Um, there's some interesting stuff happening with Sarah Palin, of all people. Uh, and there's this weird trucker rally thing that's going on. So um, those are some of the things I want to talk about today. I think it, it's very apt that it is uh, the week of Marmot Day because I was reflecting on, like, in the redistricting lawsuit, uh, you know, we it's been two weeks now, uh, and it kind of felt like we'd just sort of been, like, treading the same ground over and over again with it. It was just felt like Groundhog Day. And it was literally at that when I was feeling that it was Marmot Day. So it's very apt. But yeah, I think like kind of this whole week sort of feels like some very familiar kind of territory to be treading right now. Yeah. In some ways. And also, but at the same time, kind of weird and interesting. So this week, you know, we wrapped up the redistricting lawsuit. Well, it's still we still got another day in court, but um, this is we wrapped. <laughs> but up you can the see the witness, light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, we wrapped up the witness testimony portion of it, which is, uh, you know, it's a really unusual lawsuit. Is sort of the main thing I kind of try to tell everybody is that you know the opening arguments, even like the direct sort of testimony, is all sort of pre-filed already. So what we're getting here is uh, like the cross-examination and then the then the redirect. I guess is sort of the technical terms for it. So. We wrap that up this week. This week was mainly focused on the issue of Skagway's um, disconnect from downtown Juneau, which is sort of they have been districted with in the last uh, last decade. Um, and so the main issue here is that this guy from Juneau, Bud Simpson, this sort of Republican guy. Uh, I'm familiar. I am familiar with Bud Simpson. This really, it was this really interesting sort of uh, approach that they took, and it kind of was really made for the most interesting piece of this entire trial to me. I think is that they were really established from the get go that as a Republican from Southeast Alaska, he was kind of on a short list of uh, there's there's not a lot of Republicans in Southeast Alaska. At least is that at least sort of the argument here and so they're arguing that you know he, he's not really reflective of the city and in the area and it kind of sort of was actually borne out in this which is that basically everybody in Skagway and everybody in Juneau sort of were in general agreement that they should be sort of kept the sort of status quo district should be kept together the Mendenhall Valley should sort of be its own thing and then downtown Juneau sort of snakes around and grabs uh, Gustavus and Haynes and and Skagway into the sort of cruise ship district, I guess, is sort of the way they've been framing it. Um, and so they were they're going after Simpson for, you know, being a Republican. He went to this like uh, uh, lodge that's owned by another Republican booster in Skagway, who is literally the only person in Skagway that supported these maps. Uh, they talked a lot about uh, his support 
uh, for the Juno Road and how only the Mendenhall Valley really likes the road and downtown Juno doesn't really like the road and Skagway does Skagway is like afraid terrified of this road and and it was just this really kind of interesting um, uh, argument because so far everything has been like well is this more you know socioeconomically integrated than this and it's kind of this weird like eye test where it's all in the eye of the beholder where this ended up being like a, it felt a little more like um, concrete, I guess, as far as sort of the allegations and and the kind of the disconnect was they're able to like point to votes and point to these other things that uh, were at least built, you know, did more than just being one guy's opinion about what's connected. And so it's an interesting case. I don't know. You know, it's always so hard to like judge of whether or not this is going to like mean anything at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any like legal teeth to any of the arguments or like it because we've talked about this before and it's felt like a little bit of a of a stretch like it feels like it's kind of within the realm of things the redistricting board can do yeah and so it, it really raises this interesting question of so there's sort of there's four metrics we've sort of talked about this before but districts need to be contiguous compact relatively socioeconomically integrated and as close as possible to the ideal district population size and it and it kind of orders them in importance that way too. So population is the least sort of necessary metric. You can kind of, um, you can get pretty far away from the ideal district as long as you're uh, accomplishing the other ones. But then it's That's sort of interesting a question though, of like, because population is the most measurable. Like you can't really exactly. me- measure those other things. Yeah. And so that's so that's sort of the issue that they've sort of faced from the get go is that you know how do you measure what is compact? How do you measure what is um, socioeconomically integrated, right? Right. And, and the Skagway so, one has a tough time with contiguous because it, you know, it looks like a earmuffs district. It so lo- the proposals, loops around, right? Yeah. I mean, so the proposals put forward by uh, the Skagway plaintiffs is literally a donut hole district. So the Juno, so their proposal for the downtown Juno, Douglas, uh, um, Skagway district would literally encompass the Mendenhall Valley one. It would just be like inside of the other district. Oh, wow. And there's no like specific rules against this. But uh, yeah, it'd be pretty hard to like say that that is more compact than when you've got like literally a hole in the middle of it. But yeah, it's hard. It's interesting. It's very interesting. And uh, yeah, it's like, how do you weigh one thing against the other? Right. So is the compactness here does that over uh, override the socioeconomic integration element and then the big kind of point that i thought was kind of key in this is that the board hasn't been like particularly consistent about what it is prioritizing so mm-hmm. in some districts it's clearly they're trying to go for socioeconomic integration over compactness and so they're arguing that the board has not been consistent and I think that's kind of where to me like if we're going to have any teeth to it that's where it's going to be is right. that it's not necessarily you know this district's wrong but that the process was wrong and so yeah. that's what happened last time is that they the court ruled that the process was messed up well that's something I can really get like understand and get on board with like I you know I, I, I live in Juno. I have opinions about Juno. Yeah. <laughs> they, Actually, but, I wanted to ask but, you about all this. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just but, rambling no, here. No, no. It's funny. They, uh, um, but I, but the, like with the Skagway thing, I feel like the consistency is key. Like we talked a lot about um, Valdez last week and I feel like Skagway's in a similar, in a similar boat where there's this smaller community adjacent to larger communities and they're sort of worried about which one they're going to be lumped in with because 
it, it impacts their ability to have representation that listens to them, right? And so when for for me, I think that when you bring up this idea of consistency, that's the thing that matters. And so if they're doing one thing to like ace out Valdez on the other side, and they're doing the other and they're doing the opposite to like loop in Skagway, you know, if it's inconsistent, then I can see where that's a problem, and you need to go back and say like, okay, well, you guys need to really figure out your priorities here and make sure it's consistent that you're making these decisions in the same way and not just for your political benefit. Right. And so for me, it's less about like, where does Skagway belong? Where does Valdez belong? Where do all, any of these communities belong? And more about like, are they making a consistent decision that can be, that you can draw a line between each of these decisions and say, all right, this is, this is how they decided this. And it makes sense rather than, you know, Bud Simpson thought it would be good for him. <laughs> I mean, that, and that, that's what is so kind of stark here is that, you know, he basically said on the record that, like, the socioeconomic integration wasn't important to him and that he was primarily, you know, he said basically, like, I've always been bothered by the fact that this district didn't make sense in my eyes. And and so it was purely on that element of it that um, that he was doing it. And so, you know, he acknowledged that he ignored like all the public testimony and public input on it and and specifically was just out there to accomplish his goal of a more compact district. Did they get into any of the questions about his initial um, because he was the one that also like looped yeah. in in a very like he made some really weird first steps in the redistricting effort where he had looped Andy Story and yeah. um, and Sarah Hannon into the same district with this really it was it was described as like a tentacle with like warts on it and <laughs> this like long tendril with like a little bump that comes off of it. That yeah, looped I one... mean that it was really stark in those initial versions where there was like it grabbed literally just the block that Andy yeah. story lived on. And so the, across the street from her would have been the other, the district that she'd previously did, been did in. Did that come and up then at it all? It happened also with Dan Ortiz too, um, right. where it happened where he got split off from Ketchikan. Um, it did. It actually didn't come up in this, uh, in this Gagway trial. It came up um, in uh, the Matt Sue Valdez case where, it was really talking about it came up in the context of like, did you guys listen to public testimony? And he was like, yeah, we did. We got a lot of public testimony <laughs> from everybody who was mad about this stuff. And it was just and he and I think he even chalked it up. You know, he sort of defend and they sort of said it at the time, too, is like, oh, it was just, a, you know, just a drafting error. It was just an accidental drafting error. Um, and I think he even kind of said it in that way. It was like it, it did. And he I think he acknowledged it did look really bad yeah. because, you know, it was pretty clear. Because it did look happening. pretty bad. And yeah. it, the board is, you know, that's the thing, too, is that the registering board has done this sort of things before. Do you, you think know, you just, do you of... think, like, do you think the strategy is you just put out, like, this really egregious, like, wish list and then you walk it back from there and you're like, oh, look, we we compromised and we, and, you know, we only got half, so. half of I think what a, we wanted. A little bit because, you know, people engaged on that point, right? And yeah. I think there was a lot of uh, backlash to that. And then once it was fixed, it was you know, it ended up, you know, that satisfied that issue, but it really kind of, you know, people's attention, I think, you know, and engagement is probably tapped out on some level. Yeah. And, and then, because, you know, I didn't hear nearly as much about the fact that they were splitting up the Mendenhall Valley in the district. And that sort of seems to me to be pretty significant. Um, you know, they're talking, to, I didn't hear much of the Skagway concerns being raised. Um, but, you know, now that, now that we're getting into the lawsuit part of it, it does seem to be pretty like, 
clear at least but you know that's again that's another interesting point of it too is that you know they're you know, the skagway plaintiffs are presenting like three or four witnesses and those are just you know those are three or four people with their opinions you know it's right. not like it's it's sort of this interesting thing because we are kind of taking you know the mayor this borough manager the lobbyists are taking their opinions as evidence of how the city feels and it's kind of like you know are, are we really talking to everybody and that's sort of when you get into the issue of like how do you really judge socioeconomic integration right and well, how and do who, you judge who, all of these sort who of things? judges it right yeah it's really right. like it's not how it's who right who gets yeah. to decide and yeah it, I yeah. mean, it's going to be interesting and the judge ultimately is going to decide right so we're yeah. going to have a decision um and what's going to happen is that this judge gets to make a decision and then it basically is going to go immediately to supreme court yeah i mean he even said uh on friday you know i am justice speed bump on the way to the supreme court <laughs> justice speed bump <laughs> and i think he, he was and he was you know and that he was quoting another judge from a different cycle you know mm -hmm. and so i think um, you know, they, it's a recognition here. Uh, this is, you know, this is but a stop on the way there. What the, re you know, the big issue, what they're really doing here is trying to lay down all of the evidence and, and all of the, you know, arguments that go in front of the Supreme Court. Because, right, this is the Supreme Court. You get to write your brief and, and then you go and spend an hour trying to argue it in front of them. And so that's kind, you know, so, um, are they going to broadcast the Supreme Court? Um, yes. Th those arguments? Okay. Yeah, they're always uh, broadcast. Gavel, Alaska carries them. Great. All right, so moving on, what else is what else is in your in your cooker? Did you catch anything else this week or uh Yeah. It was what? uh it's been so yeah, uh, this week was an interesting week in the legislature in, to the level that it actually bled through into my own attention, which is you're like, I'm listening to this trial. Why are you guys making noise yeah. over there? So the House uh, on Monday kind of took sort of an unexpected move, I think. Um, it, I think it, it makes sense. You know, we talked about it last week about, you know, David East, Representative David Eastman and his ties to the Oath Keepers, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's been sort of this sort of groundswell of uh, attention on it, you know, calls for him to resign or to be removed, and they're talking about the Supreme, the Alaska Constitution's, you know, you shall not be, uh, a, you know, a member of any group that is a traitor group, basically. You shall not be a bad guy. Yeah, it was yeah. basically <laughs> it. And so uh, on Monday, the House gets together. They want to strip David Eastman of his committee assignments. It seems like they got, like, way out over their skis on it because they approve this motion to remove them. They get to the floor. David Eastman says, stands up and says, you're doing it wrong. This other, this one committee I'm on needs a higher threshold of a vote to remove me. It should be a separate vote. They take a long break during which they say, oh, yeah, David Eastman apparently knows the rules better than us, which is just kind of on its own, a bad look. And then sort of during this discussion, it seems like they start to actually like look around and they go, oh, I don't think we actually have the 21 votes necessary to do this. And so it just is like it you know, completely made uh, the point that this is, you know, distracting. It's sort of the, a waste, of, maybe a waste of time. I mean, I think it, I think there is definitely like worth in discussion, discussing all this. I think that, you know, I think removing him is probably makes sense, I guess, you know, he's, he's been removed before. When you say remove him, you, do you mean remove him from the legislature or remove uh, him I from think from committees, committees, right? I think, 
but again, you know, he's been removed before. It doesn't really stop, change his behavior or anything like that. Um, no, but it gives him less leverage and less of a platform to exercise yeah. his, his uh, well, and also when you talk about the, like, the time and money that it takes to run a legislative session, people like David Eastman and Laura Reinbold really yeah. cost us a lot of money in terms of the time they that they waste. Yeah. So they table the motion, kind of expected to come back on Wednesday to do it. And by then, everybody in the building gets a, uh, in the house at least gets exposed to COVID. So uh, that's fun, I guess. Like half of them, you know, Eastman hasn't broken any laws. Uh, um, it, it's and arguably he's broken the Constitution by being a member of a seditious organization. But they haven't even been rung up on those charges yet. You know, the Oath Keepers. There's several members, including their leadership, that are facing charges of sedition. But that's something that has you know that hasn't been resolved in court yet. And it, it's hard to sort of like prove out that connection and say like he is seditious. He participated in this. You know, like the receipts aren't really there. They haven't produced like here's all his like forum forum secret forum hate yeah. bro chat blog things and i think until there's like a much firmer connection it's gonna be hard to really act on so i think that when you said the legislature got out over their skis i think you're right i think that they there's a lot of public pressure because eastman's horrible and i think we all kind of know who and what he is and we all want him gone but i think the <clears throat> the problem is you can know who and what someone is and if they walk that line very carefully there's nothing to you know to connect them to yeah to that yeah and I think that's kind of that that sort of like wiggle room is sort of where a lot of the Republicans decided to sort of circle the wagons on it because you know Eastman came out with this sort of statement talking about how it's all cancel culture wolves <laughs> and it's all you know the hit kind of like the greatest hits of stuff about yeah. like election security border security critical yeah. race theory gets mentioned in here. <laughs> and it's sort of like the magic words, right? That like the Republicans were like, "Oh yeah, like we we support them because we don't we definitely don't support cancel culture." And I think it's you know the fact that right that it's not sort of concretely laid out that he did anything wrong is what they're hiding behind, right? And I think you hear from several people saying, "Well, he hasn't been charged with a crime," and and this group, you look at their bylaws. The bylaws say, "Don't you know throw overthrow the government or whatever." Yeah, it's interesting. And so that's kind of why uh, through the Midnight Sun political <clears throat> blog, we published a piece this um, week uh, op ed by oh, right. um, a classmate of, of, of Eastman. Um, that was a, uh, that was a big op ed. It was um, the piece where it sort of linked his um, language to the actions of some of these organizations mm -hmm. was really good. Like it, it talked about how when he was confronted with the question of are you a holocaust denier he said there's nothing to deny which is sort of a coy little way of saying like why would i deny something that doesn't exist and right you know they i think that your op the op-ed that you ran um did a really good job of kind of connecting a lot of dots um on eastman and laid out a really good case for like why they should take him seriously yeah and i think it, that's i think the important part to me is that um it is sort of like decoding the language of it because that's the thing that a lot of these sort of like far right sort of conservative groups sort of do and hide behind is that they, you know, they sort of drape themselves in patriotism and, and anti-federal overreach and all these sort of things. And they're kind of like each one of them is sort of a wink and a nod that that, you know, might sort of play well with uh, or at least be benign like it's, enough it's to be sort of excusable. palatable yeah right but then um you know it's a, a lot of it you know the people who are in 
sort of steeped in this sort of language are are able to clue in on. And so that's actually, and so the really interesting point about it is that, so it's written by David uh, Rebrook IV. Um, he is a West Point graduate and a private attorney. And, and so in private practice, he was actually one of the attorneys who represented some of the people from the Unite the Right Charlottesville um, fascist guys. Is that the one where and, they ran over a girl with a car? I don't think it's not specifically that guy, right? But it's it's in the that the group of organizers, the, yeah. the tiki torch, um, yeah, guys, yeah, it's basically and yeah, and I think it's important. You know, he kind of you know, I think for him it felt really important to say like, look, I know who these people are. I just spent like the last year around them, and I understand kind of the language, and so. I think, you know, I, I kind of struggled initially with whether or not I really wanted to run it just because a lot of it is, you know, it's his observations, right? It's not even yeah. nothing in here is necessarily a smoking gun as far as, you know, what Eastman is, you know, right. we, it doesn't, it's an, it's it doesn't an look opinion. into his heart to know. It, I mean, yeah. in its purest form, it's an op-ed. Yeah. It's like, this is what I think of this guy, right? Yeah. It's, and I think, is... that, I think that that sort of in, understanding, at least within that context is important. And, and I think bringing that perspective of like hey this is the kind of language that they use and this is also what also happens to be eastman's language is i think at least useful and informative i think you know i always talk about how i think reporters especially have like a, you know most reporters right are coming from a more progressive background um you know there are a lot of them are atheist or agnostic or very lightly religious they're not you know i think a big blind spot that we all have in reporting is you know, like we don't understand evangelical the evangelical movement very well like few people do and i think you know you look at you know like a lot of the language that dunleavy uses for example like it is there's a lot of like strands of like evangelicalism in there that i like think save anchorage right like yeah the word and, and, save means something different yeah and so a lot of that sort of stuff in there um you know i think you know again it, it goes back to sort of like publicly sort of benign and palatable but it is sort of a wink and a nod to a greater sort of movement and political sort of platform. And I think just at least having it on your radar is really useful, I think, yeah. because it, you know, it's easy to sort of dismiss these ideas as like, Oh, they're just, you know, they are just those weird Patriot guys, but it's like, no, they're the weird Patriot guys who have some like really troubling opinions about people of color and, you know, women and all the, you know, all the, it's just so many things that, you know, for policymakers that we should really understand kind of like who we're putting in here, the values they represent and uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I ran, I ran into that this week with, um, you know, uh, Kirka is a representative. Kirka is running for governor and he announced. Yeah. His, he's like the his, little buddy of Eastman. Yeah. Right. And he announced his, his uh, running mate this week. And uh, this guy, has a bunch of social media posts that like refer to the great awakening and all this stuff, you know, and it was highlighted. And I was like, what does this mean? What, I don't understand what's going on here. And so Southern poverty law center talks about it in, in their giant list of like QAnon buzzwords. And it's, you know, it's tied into all this like weird global elite stuff, which is tied into this like anti-Semitic thing. And it's, it's very bizarre. And so you're, you're like, you see that person's language and you maybe don't like pick it up, but then you go back and you're like, oh, okay, this is like a QAnon dude. But okay. So, so Matt, this, this whole Eastman discussion, um, I, I think really sets me up here for a good, like choose your own adventure, uh, departure. So I'm, I'm going to let you, uh, do you want to <laughs> hear, do you want to talk about Sarah Palin or do you want to talk about trucks? Because I think both you've you've led nicely into both of these oh, things. Yeah. 
I mean, I think they're kind of one in the same. But yeah, let's do the trucks first. So, so Sarah Palin's been like parading around. I'm, I'm choosing your own adventure for yeah, you. Sorry. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> you want to? I chose wrong. We can, well, you chose wrong. We're gonna do Palin. <laughs> all right. So, do, do you know that Palin's been in the news lately? Yeah. yeah do you know why? Suing the suing the New York Times. She's suing the New York Times, right? And so, um, you know, I I brought this up with a friend of mine, and I said, you know, Sarah Palin's in the news, and and she was like, well, I you know Sarah okay who cares and uh is it because she's parading around New York and like spreading COVID everywhere and I was like yeah that's kind of why they're why she's in the news but do you know why she's in New York and the reason she's in New York New York yes you are correct she is suing the New York Times and I think this is like one of those it's kind of a big deal for journalists so you probably know you probably know a lot about this but the reason that someone is able to write an op-ed like the one you published is because there's a very high standard um, f- for what you can say about public uh, public figures without um, it being defamation. So for someone to like connect the dots on Eastman, you know that's not defamation because they're not well in this case they're probably not saying anything pr- specifically untrue, but they're also not doing it um, with intent of actual malice. And so this New York Times case with Sarah Palin is really interesting because remember she had that crosshairs graphic mm-hmm, of like mm-hmm. like all these crosshairs on people and everyone freaked out. It's like you're encouraging shooters. So the New York Times published this op-ed that linked that crosshair graphic to the mass shooting uh, that killed six people and wounded Gabby Giffords. And, um, you know, they said that her political incitement basically like caused this event to happen. And they're wrong <laughs> they were just like straight up wrong about it and they had to publish a retraction and um so sarah palin's suing them but because she's a public figure she has to prove that they did this with malice that they didn't just mm-hmm. like whoopsie accidentally um you know like oh we wrote the wrong thing and so it's it's a pretty high bar but the the interesting thing about this case is that there are already two supreme court justices and a lot of political folks who have said we need to re-examine this we need to like go back to this 1964 decision that sets the bar at actual malice for public figures and that could have like broad and sweeping changes uh you know for journalism if the standard for what you can write about a public figure uh without getting sued for defamation rolls back to the same standard it is for you know a private citizen Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I guess I'd be interested in hearing what you have you been thinking about it that much or like, you know, I'm f- for a more sort of pr- protective way of being able to speak when we're talking about public figures. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, we we end up sort of looking at these like legal questions through a political lens. And it's like, no, like the, the First Amendment is supposed to protect kind of all sorts of speech. And it's not just the speech that you agree with. And I think that's what is like so. Like I already feel like a 10 minute rant coming on here, but like I can feel I kind of, you know, it's sort of frustrating because you look around right now in the country and you look at like the book bannings that are going on. You look mm-hmm. at, you know, a lot of this sort of attempts to really like interfere with public schools and, you know, or you know you can't make white people feel bad is, you know, some of these laws that they're looking at. And um, those bannings, those bannings have evolved into burnings now. Yeah. Side note. Side yeah. note. But, I mean, okay, and it's like, it. you know, I, I think you can't not or you, like you, I, when I look at these, it's just like a complete erosion of the First Amendment. Right. And it, they're doing it under the guise of like we're we're going after speech that is bad. But it's like, wow, dude, like 
I don't know. It's just, you know, it is a complete erosion of the values that this country apparently hold held dear at one point. And I think that's what is really kind of like keeps me up at night is, you know, how long before, you know, we can only speak positively about Republican politicians. So, I mean, honestly, it's like, if okay, if you're going to roll back what we can say about public officials and, and treat it like private people like that. I don't think that's the direction we should be going. We shouldn't be having like public figures being really like sensitive about what people are saying about them. I think that being able to question power and authority is like a, a really key thing here. But like, I, I would say that there's very little about, you know, the right wing media that is questioning power and authority in, in a honest and legitimate way. And that's sort of the problem, right, is that we basically have like a propaganda arm at this point uh, of the Republican Party and the far right. And so, so you're saying they might not benefit from rolling back those protections. Yeah, because they are the ones that are most, you know, most heavily relying on defaming and libeling public officials. Right. And and they've been able to get away with like some really, you know, crazy, horrendous stuff. And and, and if you wanted to be able to talk about malice, which is the current, you know, standard, I'm sure there's plenty of lawsuits on the table that you could bring against these organizations, you know, to argue malice. You look at, I mean, it, yeah, it's just so, it, like, <laughs> okay. it, to me, it's really frustrating because I think... At, <laughs> I chose I think, an adventure I, and frustration for Yeah, you. <laughs> I think that, you know, I think the, the idea of a free press is a, like, privilege that we, you know, it's not guaranteed in the world. You can go to other places where you can be arrested you can you know for saying something out of line with the 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 power it's frustrating me too because in america like there is a rolling back of that through you know the corporatization of media outlets you look at you know the t all the um buying up uh, of of uh tv stations and newspapers and, and like these forced editorials that are running through them and all that sort of stuff is just like you know it, it is so frustrating because you get to then you see that sort of like these these political sort of false narratives become begin to shape opinions right and and you look at you know you look at the, the January 6 guys like very few of those people probably independently came up with all these theories and independently you know just just one day we're all sudden so mad that they're going to go storm the capitol no they were like whipped up into it like intentionally by fox news one america news uh, uh, you know, the complete, you know, sort of network of disinformation on Facebook and other places. And, Spe and speaking of that, can we, can we segue yeah. into trucks? Yeah. Cause yeah, I think, it's I think exactly that's, a perfect thing. Yeah. That's, that's a, it's a really interesting thing to me. Like, so this started for me, uh, last week I was doing some filming at the state museum and as I was putting my gear away, I looked at my phone and there was like this tweet that from, you know, KTOO or Russia or someone had tweeted that there's this truck rally going on in town and it's like a uh, open the open the Canadian border truck rally like no vaccine mandate and it's like oh god this uh, okay so I get in the car and I pull onto the highway and then Lou is like why are there uh, why are all these hazard lights flashing and I look and there's like a lady on the sidewalk like filming us and I, I'm like oh shit we're in the middle of this like oh. tr trucker procession. We're like, I'm like, Oh, there's people are honking their horns. I'm like, we're, we're in the middle of the thing I just read about. Oh my God. Oh, we no. got to turn off. We got to turn off the road. 
this is so bad. And so Lou and I are sitting in our little, like, our little Honda Fit with our masks on, so we're not, you know, like, <laughs> and and we're in the middle of all these trucks honking. And I had to get downtown to my office. I had to I had to cross this line a couple times. I was able to cut in at one point because the uh, this little lady was crossing the street super slow and just scowling at them. And uh, so I, she let me turn in and get into yeah. a parking spot. But it was uh, it was interesting. And I was like, okay, what is this all about? I got I got to understand what this is all about. And so I went and looked up some of this stuff. And the you know this is this um, ostensibly they are protesting the um, the vaccine mandate at the border between the United States and Canada, so that um, because they want unvaccinated truckers to be able to cross the line. Um, they want open borders. They yeah. Well, and and that's I mean that's part of the irony here. There's is a that convoy they, at the border. Part of the irony is that there are a lot of people who are traditionally opposed to border access for some who want border access for themselves and and without these horrendous mandates. Um, and the uh, you know the thing about this is that there are a lot of countries that exercise their like autonomous freedom to impose vaccine mandates you know you've got you've got to get your shots before you go into these countries there's tons of hundreds right and then also there's a history of mandates between the u.s and canada border we had one in the late 1800s um for i believe for smallpox um but there's like it's not like a new thing it's just a thing that's been newly politicized and so um i mean so anyways anyways this is a it's a complicated issue, and there are a lot of people that don't like the idea of mandates. They don't like being told what to do, but at the same time, like, you know, you don't have to go through the border. And if that's your job, maybe you're in the wrong profession. I mean, that's sort of the that's sort of the language you've been using. They've been using to talk about everything before. You know, like, oh, if you don't like your pay, get a new job, right? If you don't like this or that, don't get a new job. If you don't like to be harassed by people, get a new job. And I think that's like, it's kind of what's interesting about it too is that kind of preceding this um you know there was a group a bipartisan group of legislators that signed on a letter that was supporting you know the truckers right and it was kind of before it really like spiraled out of control it sort of speaks to like the insidious nature of a lot of this sort of stuff you know it started out with this idea that you know it it kind of it really started off with this like idea of like the supply chain right these supply chain concerns that have been really drummed up over the last like two months and then it's talking about you know the, if we get the more truckers then the supply chains will be better it's sort of the the next leap and then you see um you know democrats that kind of like uh and other people that you thought were pretty reasonable signing onto this letter talking about vaccine trucker freedom and then all of a sudden, it's like the truckers are like waving Nazi flags, you know, right. and, and, that's, and, and and like creating violence in Canada. And it's interesting. Just I think you talk, you kind of look at all these sort of movements. Is like it 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 starts off with something that is like you know broadly kind of acceptable, right? Like we don't, you know, no one really likes mandates, and and, and I mean, no one no one really likes the supply chain being broken, right? No one likes not being able to get milk. It talks about so I think you know you, you look at you know you look at a lot of the QAnon pipeline. It starts off with you know the wellness sort of movement of like oh I don't want to put anything um, you know unnatural in my body, and then it kind of turns into anti-vaccine, and then it's like it's just a hop, skip, and a jump into like full-on like fascist racism. And I right. think it gets to 
some of the underlying problems I think that we have as a country. I think, you know, there's this myth that racism is over, right? For many people, many people just don't want to like talk about that. But, you know, a lot of these things like just get back to like sort of racist, anti-science sort of attitudes that I think are are a little more prevalent than we would like to admit. And I think it's uncomfortable for people who, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't racist, right? But are kind of ultimately somehow being are become enabling to this sort of language because, you know, you look at you talk about some of the, um, you know, the child protection. Uh, we got to protect the children, sort of movements. You know, that's that's very much steeped in, you know, this kind of QAnon-y, uh racist sort of language. Right, you know, and you, who wouldn't want to protect children, right? Like, yeah, you, what you start good... off with who wants to, who wouldn't protect children, and then the next meme in it is it's okay to be white. You know, you should be proud of being white, and then it's all of a sudden talking about how, you know, all lives matter, blue lives matter, all this sort of like just. It's uh it's like okay. all this sort of coded so, language that is is really getting at something pretty nasty. Yeah, it is. And that's what I wanted to talk about is that this is rooted in in that. Like the so what happened with this event is that like people danced on the tomb of the unknown soldier in Canada. There were people carrying Confederate flags, there were people carrying swastikas. Um, you know, and the argument I think for people who have already invested and supported this movement are is like well that's just like a fringe element those are just some people that showed up to our party but like you know you don't if someone shows up with a swastika you like you get rid of them or you're part of that right you're like that's the signal you're sending that that's okay you know same thing Mm -hmm. with the guy with the confederate flag if he's in your if he's in your truck parade that's a problem with your truck parade not a problem with just that guy the the interesting thing about this organization is that actually a lot of the organizers are sort of steeped in this they're sort of steeped in this anti-semitic anti-islamic toxicity so um several of the organizers have been um like they've they've said like horrific things on social media they've suggested fighting uh uh, restrictions with bullets they've um been involved in other kind of other movements so and so what i'm trying to say is that like this isn't a fringe element this is this is a problem that is embodied you know in the organization in the organizers and i think we're going to see that just become more and more apparent as this evolves and it's a it's one of those things that like it's kind of too bad that people have invested in it early because now they're going to be in a position of having to defend this and then all of a sudden you're now you're defending now you have now you're in the position of defending this guy with the confederate flag now you're in the position of defending anti-semitic speech you know and it's so i don't know it feels like the people who have like come out to bat for this need to really like walk it back quickly it sort of, you know, I think it goes back to everything we've been talking about, which is it's basically like rights for me, not for you. And you talk about, you know, and I think it, the Blue Lives Matter movement, quote unquote movement, I think is like to me one of the most um, strongest sort of examples of this. Right. Because, you know, that was what we heard yelled you know, all through the 2020 protests and all that sort of stuff. And then they go to the U.S. Capitol and they murder a couple co- police officers, right? And 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 it's labeled as what do they call it? You know, what was the word that they use? Uh, legitimate Com- public Co- compassionate legitimate. compassionate release from the moral no, coil. Yeah, the G, no, GOP <laughs> like they called it yesterday. They called it legitimate political discourse. What happened on January six? And wow. and I think 
you know, and, and these are this is coming from a group that spent the last like two years hyperventilating about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And, yes. And and so you know, was that not legitimate political discourse? You know, you know, even you know, but under that standard, you know, this is this was January six. People were murdered. People, you know, were killed. There was a destruction of public property. All this sort of stuff. You know, and so it's like, but you just spent the last two years yelling about a couple of gas stations getting burned down, right? Like, and 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 ignore and using that, you know, the this, the instances of violence to to try to invalidate a movement about, um, you know, racial equity, equality and equity in America. And so, you know, the fact that you know one of the you know one of them is invalid because it's trying to better the lives of people of color. But this other one's valid because it's trying to protect the feelings of white people, like should tell you all you need to know about where this movement is. And I think it's so frustrating because, you know, it gets back to what I was ranting about last week, right, about, you know, maintaining the power structures here. But, you know, I think that's what is so frustrating about it is that, you know, I think there are people who rightly feel like they've been wronged by the system. But it's not because of you know, a person of color, you know, getting a college application, it's because of like bigger powers above you holding the thumb down on you. And, and to see people so quickly kind of get distracted by sort of like nonsense is so frustrating because it, it not only, you know, turns people against each other, but it, it, it really distract takes away from like true efforts to make things better, right? To make yeah. things better for everybody, right? If You know, and I think, you know, you look at I think that's all I need to say about no, but <laughs> going I, out. Yeah, I, I, it makes it, it makes sense to me in some in some ways though because I think that we we get angry and we swing at the things that are in our reach. Like I, you know, like I can't do anything about Donald Trump. Like he's on this like national level of discourse that like I can't say or do anything that's gonna you know Im- impact that that person or his sphere, right? But I can say and do things that matter here in Alaska or here in Juneau. And so if I get really angry that Donald Trump tried to overturn the election, I have to turn my energy to local politics. And I have to say, like, okay, how do we have better how do we have better policy? How do we have better decision making? How do we all agree that, you know, these are the rules that we're gonna follow? And so I think what we're seeing with, you know, going back to Eastman, people aren't just angry at Eastman. I mean, Eastman is, mm-hmm. is awful. He's horrible, but, but people are angry at this bigger thing and Eastman's the person that they can reach. And so mm-hmm. I think that's why the volume of, of, uh, uh, you know, volume of voices that are angry at Eastman is coming out is because you can't do anything about this nationalist, amorphous national international now movement of sort of like the rise of white supremacists. Right. And so what do you do? You try and, deal with the white supremacists at home and so i think that with when you're talking about when you're talking about class i think that you've got people that are maybe they're even fully maybe they fully realize that it's the jeff bezos's and you know the elon musk's the billionaires of the world that have kind of rigged the system to their advantage that can you know the Koch brothers or whoever whoever your your billionaire illuminati boogeyman is but I think that the, uh, but I think people do realize that like those are people that are just out of their reach. They can't do anything about mm-hmm. their frustrations with that system. You can't change corporate America, right? As a, as an individual, but what you can do is you can go and you can drive your truck and 
park it in an inconvenient spot for someone in a honk a lot. And so you, and you can, you can reach out and you can, you can punch down at people that are, that are stealing your job or whatever, you know, whatever perception you have. And I think it makes it easier for those things to bubble up and to, to take hold because it becomes the, the fight that you can fight and the person that mm-hmm. you can harm, uh, when it's maybe not even the person that des- deserves your ire. Right. You, you look at Congress, right. And, and, you know, so much is being held up by a rich, you know, guy, you know, octogenarian or whatever with a, a massive yacht, right? Like, the fact that this is sort of the roadblock to it, it feels so frustrating because it is like, you know, there's some real good work that we could be doing. I think you look, you know, this talking about the national level, but you look at the legislature, right? Legislature too. And there's, you know, all this effort and attention and sort of division that we've been sowing over the fight over Eastman is, it you know, it sort of d- distracts from potential other things that they could be. And I'm not, I also am like not naive enough or not totally naive to like suggest that it would be totally perfect if like that you know being trying to hold nazis accountable is like the reason we can't you know pass like good child care like laws but yeah um i think it, it just creates a sort of situation where you know the the anger and attention is sort of it's not misdirected but i think it it, it sort of turns everybody off from it and i think you know, we are we are stronger when we can find common ground. And that's what I think is, is so frustrating about all of this is that, you know, it it is a side that is looking at the divisions and and seeing an opportunity. Right. And rather than, you know, looking at the co- shared shared common fear, you know, that we all don't like the the um, supply chain issues. Right. And you'd think it would be an opportunity to talk about you know, transportation and infrastructure and, and food security in America and in, in the state. And there are people talking about it. You know, governor is actually one of those people talking about it. But, um, you know, you look at sort of the political discourse around it and it's, you know, bear shells Biden and it's, you know, all this sort of <laughs> crap. And it's, and, and you know, and, you you know, the, the trucker thing is like the the pinnacle of that, where it's it's taking this and then it's saying, well, also, let's have some Nazi flags at it. And. I think it's frustrating because it feels like, you know, we can't even begin to have a conversation because, you know, we are busy trying to deal with the fascist white supremacists that are part, you know, are are taking advantage of this sort of general angst. And I think that it feels so frustrating about it. Um, Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity in there as well like i think that mm-hmm. you know when people are angry they don't necessarily make the best decisions when people are angry they're gonna like throw their money at something to to stop it when people are angry you know like like for example the trucker rally raised eight million dollars that they were going to use to like buy gas and food and support their movement and probably it's going to half of it was going to end up in someone's pocket or whatever but it's like you know like that's those are real resources and someone's benefiting from those. And I think that when you have anger, I think there is a political element that wants to sow division and wants there to be an, wants there to be fiery rage in people's belly because it keeps them motivated and keeps them engaged in a way that like boring policy discussions just won't. Right. So kind of pivoting. I mean, this is actually, again, sort of there's, if you want to like try to do the little thread through everything, this is, so the governor's um, settled, a lawsuit this week with the Alaska, the two psychiatrists from the Alaska Psychi- Psychiatric Institute, 
who were fired as part of the like the loyalty pledge firings that you know when Dunleavy came into office um, settled this week and it was for nearly a half a million dollars. It's kind of like eye-watering amount. Four hundred ninety-five thousand yeah. dollars. And yeah. so the kind of the real, real quick refresher is that the governor came into office and made everybody who was non-union, so therefore could be fired on the spot, really, at-will employees, um, resign and then reapply with a document that literally said something along the, or said along the lines of, you know, I agree with Dunleavy's political platform for Alaska. And a lot of people did, didn't sign it, right? Because it was, you know, it really, and, and this is what the, the judges have ruled in this case. Um, Libby Bacalar also brought a case against this. There was another, I think there's a fourth one that also settled that it's compelled speech, right? That's sort of the, the key the key problem here is that you are forcing an association with something as as grounds for employment. And I think that's like, that's a problem. It, government compelling speech is a problem. And, uh, and and I think, you know, it, it just is sort of the cherry on top almost of this like entire administration of b- this kind of like putting politics over policy in some ways. And, and, you know, these are the doctors weren't, you know, they're not policymakers. They're not like doing anything political. They are. There's two of them also. So yeah. like this, this is like four hundred ninety five thousand dollars split amongst two people right so they're each getting like 200 grand plus and it's it this is money that is interesting to me because uh the governor doesn't have the power of appropriation the legislature does right so the legislature controls the purse the what this means is the legislature for the state to pay this money out to these people is going to have to shoehorn five hundred thousand dollars into their budget now, uh, a thing that was brought up this week that was that was interesting to me is like there's a possibility the legislature will say, no, like mm-hmm. we're not going to do it, and then it's unclear what will happen after that. Like if the if that means that these people are going to have to go to court and get their money somehow, or if the governor is just going to be on the hook for it himself. Because in this in this case, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in this case. Uh, the idea of qualified immunity was sort of thrown out. So yeah, because it was such an egregious act, is sort of what they rule is that these guys weren't, you know, weren't policy positions. I think they they were able to maintain their uh, Dunleavy and, and Tuckerman Babcock, the former chief of staff, were able to maintain their qualified immunity in, in the firing of um, Libby Bacalar, specifically because as an attorney, she is a policymaker, and so there was like there was a world in which. You know, firing her for her political leanings would have been appropriate if they were able to prove that it had affected her job. These guys weren't. You know, these guys were just. You know, they were doctors. They were were you know providing medical care and directing medical care at the state's psychiatric hospital. And so, um, yeah, I think that's like a real. It's not really been explained to me in any sort of detail, or I haven't seen like a really satisfying explanation as to why this was an appropriate course of action for the state to take because. Um, as I understand, you know, in, the, in, in times when, when uh, you know, governors have been found with ethics complaints, they typically pay them. You know, it's, it's their their fault, their violation. It shouldn't be the state picking up the tab for it. You know, it, just because you are the governor doesn't mean you are, you know, free to violate the Constitution. But it that that appears the people to be... have to pick up your check every time. Yeah, and that that appears to be the approach of this administration, which I think is just like so 
galling, right? Because, you know, it was such a mean-spirited political thing from the get-go. It was petty at the time. It looks even worse now. And it looks even worse now that the state, you know, it's $500,000. There are, like, several programs that, like, fight fight tooth and claw for um, $500,000, right? There's a lot of, like, great, or you know, things yeah. that could use that money. Or, you know, or we could just not spend the money. We could save the money, right? And so, you know, paying $500,000 for the governor's vanity, basically, it's just, to me, it's just so like frustrating and, well and that's on top feels... of that's on top of all the money and resources that were spent in in pursuit of litigation right and but i'd yeah. love to know what is the you know what is the total amount that this governor has spent on like either fruitless lawsuits or having to pay out fines on his own lawsuits or you know like how much is this it's it's, it's got to be in the millions now yeah and, you know attorney fees all kinds of crazy stuff and it feels like there's just another one of these every couple months there's like a new you know, the governor lost this lawsuit and spent a bunch of Alaska's money on it, and it adds up. Well, and I think it should be really kept in mind, too, with the context of, you know, the governor isn't directly calling for a constitutional convention, but people in his orbit are, right? And and so there's this sort of drive to radically change the Constitution, um, you know, from a group that so far has, you know, proven that they're they don't really hold the tenets in our constitution all that seriously when it comes to the first amendment right and and you know the the you know in in alaska they would really like to go after you know the judicial election process the um the right to privacy you know the, all these sort of things that they would really like to change and i think you know to me it just is like frustrating that you know that these are this is a group that doesn't want to follow the law wants to change the law to permit the you know for their political benefit i guess and, and all the while you know arguing about originalism and and the founding fathers and and following the law you know that it's it the the amount of projection that they put onto the progressive efforts is just so like galling isn't even the right word at this point right and i think it's just like it's so frustrating to see you know you know, right? The governor talks about, oh, we need lower regulations for businesses, but, but then as soon as the businesses and the the, the investment banks say, oh, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be uh, burning the earth up with with you know, hydrocarbons. We the state refuses, starts to say, well, we don't want to interact with these businesses anymore. You're talking and it's about like, ADA's hit list yeah, now. Yeah, the, the <laughs> enemy of the the, the enemies of. The enemies list of the state's investment. Was that an actual right? thing? I saw that come out. There's like I think this. So, yeah. So yeah. there's like a list of of businesses and organizations that Ada views as like enemies of the state and will not do business with, and it includes. And it's like Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo. And J.P. Morgan, yeah. and like and the Hurls Grant. Yeah, like the granny grannies for the environment <laughs> sort of stuff. You know, it's just so. It is it is so weird to me, you know. I think this sort of slide into bending the rules to fit, you know, our political their political like position is 
like ought to be really concerning, right? Like if it was the if if we'd flipped everything around and we were saying that we will only work, you know, if there's a Democrat in there and they're saying Ada shall only work with the Hurl Scouts and shall only work with like green businesses, they would be going apoplectic about it, right? And so I think that is just you know, it goes back to the redistricting thing, even you know, all we're asking for is consistency in how we apply the rules, right? Because kind of you get down to all of this sort of like angst about the system is that the the big problem is that the rules are so inconsistently applied across the board right, right? it's about equity right it's about fairness yeah. you know it, it's not you know it's from it's in everything it, it is in you know from law enforcement's you know a police officer's you know treatment of different people of color to you know investment banks treatment of of people of color or 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 different socioeconomic classes to you know the the way we treat you know, seem to favor businesses and landlords over employees and, and, and tenants and all this sort of stuff is just, you know, I think what's so frustrating is that it's not fair. You know, the, the systems that we've put in place in the name of fairness that we pretend to uphold in the name of fairness are anything but right. And I think that, you know, well, it takes a it, lot of careful yeah. consideration from leaders to be able to make these things equitable and i think that it's like you know you let's circle around you know it's marmot day episode right so we're yeah. going to circle back around again and again here to david eastman <laughs> just this <laughs> scruffy red-headed marmot um the uh but but i think that you know like when you think about what it might take to throw someone like eastman out of the legislature think about the burden of proof you'd want on your own you know, representative, right? Like, mm -hmm. should should Sarah Hannon be thrown out of the legislature because when she was in college, she went to like a, I don't know, like, I mean, I'm not saying she did, but like, what if she went to like a college socialist rally or something? You know, I feel like mm -hmm. this, like, if someone's loosely linked to like an organization, uh, is that enough to to say you're you're out of here and you can't represent the people of Alaska, right? So, I, you know, I think that. It's, it, you know, and we talked about the, we talked about Black Lives Matter and how it related to some of this like January 6th stuff and the trucker movement. And I think that there's important balance there too, right? So like, you know, they, they're voicing the anger of like hundreds of years of oppression rising out of slavery, everything from like redlining to bad banking laws and s systemic oppression. And on the other hand, you've got this movement that feels a little bit more rooted in like i i want every privilege that i've always had and deserve because i was born into privilege you know i, I would you know that's the thing that's so frustrating about it is that you know there's sort of a whataboutism in here with it and i'm like i would say yeah you know the truckers have the right to demonstrate like i would completely agree with it it's you, Laddie Shaw, that seems to be in the belief that the Black Lives Matter people had no right to demonstrate. And you were you were harping about it now and you're holding them up now as some reason to be that you're, oh, the left is hypocritical about everything. But it's like, no, I think there is some difference here. You know, I, I would say, you know, someone who burned down a police station. Yeah, you could arrest them. They did get arrested. They got beat up. Some of them got killed. Right. Like that all happened, you know, and I think, you know, like like that the people that did that should be held accountable i don't but i at the same time i don't think it means that the points you know the larger political points are invalidated right and i think the same thing with the 
you know, the same thing with the capital, the capital insurrection, right? Like hold those people accountable. It doesn't mean that you can't, you know, no one said you can't talk about this stuff. You know, no one said you can't, we, you know, we have to invalidate the right wing movement too. Like we would like to, but it doesn't mean we get to, right? And I think that's sort of what feels frustrating here is that they look at the they the way that they've treated the Black Lives Matter movement and the left sort of justification of it is now being held up as well. You can't you know you can't be mean to David Eastman because he's a Nazi, right? And it's just <laughs> like what the fuck? And hey, like the Black Lives Matter movement is talking about why we shouldn't kill black people. Like that's sort of the core issue there. And then the Nazi movement is about why we should, you know, the Nazis believe that you should, you know, that's, that's, I think that's such the difference here is that I, when I see a black lives matter person on the street, I don't immediately think about the atrocities that they've committed. I, when I see a Nazi on the street, I know that that person, if they had their way, would exterminate me. You know, I'm, I'm a, a, a mixed race person. I'm a Brown person. Like, you know, that like, that's, I think is, it was just so fundamentally different about them. And I think, you know, you sort of this, what about ism with it is so bullshit because one of the side wants to kill the other side. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that the other is side wants sort of to not be killed. Yeah. <laughs> like, like let's, let's not murder everyone. Yeah. Let's so maybe yeah, let's we'll rewind this to the part where we're getting conflicted about it. But so we've talked about, you know, we're, we're, we're getting pretty far afield here, but that's all good stuff. And I think that, we just, I, I'd love to sort of bring it back to Alaska. We're kind of like in big philosophical, like national, international issues. How, so, like what, let's come back home. So yeah, one thing I, I do want to talk about okay. is, you know, so, I, you know, we've been sitting here talking about how the Eastman and the division is distracting and it, you know, but you know, the legislature obviously is able to do two things at once, right? And I think one of the really good examples this week is the passage of Representative Jonathan Christ Tompkins' um, recidivism bill. It's a pretty simple piece of legislation that had some, like, totally expected sort of, like, sidetracks along the way. But basically the, the kind of key idea in here is that people who are in prison are not being well-prepared for reentry that they are don't really like, you know, especially when a lot of like reentry and job search and, and services are all based on computers. Right. So the idea here behind this bill is that um, people in prison should have some limited access to digital devices. You know, basically the idea is that you could bring in a laptop that has, you know, job applications on it or maybe some classes on it or some courses. And it's not, mm -hmm. You know, it's not like this broad access to the Internet, which I, you know, I would argue that there should be, you know, prisoners doesn't mean they like should be locked off from the world. Right. I think I would argue that there should be more, you know, broad, you know, access to, to things in there. I don't, you know, but, you know, right. where the political realities are, they, you know, the way this bill was written is, is pretty locked down. Um, but, you know, it, it passed, you know, I think it was 33 to one. Um, you probably can guess who the one was. And. Uh, you know, I think some stuff like this is, is, you know, baby steps, but it's a step in the right direction about trying to make it, you know, it's recognizing that there is an inequity in the system, that the, the criminal justice system is not setting people up for success once they get out. Does this bill like make everything great? No, of course not. Like there, there's a lot of hurdles, you know, in here. I think, you know, you, there's another bill that is, they're talking about that would limit online access to, uh, um, 
uh, marijuana convictions for crimes that are no longer on the books, right? And, and you know, simple possession sort of stuff. And I think, you know, you look at this sort of stuff, and I, to me, I think it, it is, you know, it's a it's, it matters to somebody, right? And it and it matters to somebody in a positive way that will hopefully make the direction of their life a little bit better, right? And I think that's the sort of stuff that I I wish more of the legislative you know, bills reflected, right, is, is, you know, it, it should, I think it kind of should answer the question of like, does this make someone's life better? You know, does this make someone's life better that has, has been, you know, historically, uh, you know, held down, right? And, you know, and that's the thing that is so frustrating to me <laughs> is that, you know, we, we have this sort of scare tactic around critical race theory, right? And, and there's this whole idea that about what it is that it, that it isn't the idea behind critical race theory is that we look at this you know the long-term sort of structural inequities that have made it difficult for some people to go about life and, and we address them and i think that's you know there's several bills that you could look at recently that have passed that have passed with broad support that are you know shining examples of looking at the inequities in our system and trying to solve them and I think that, you know, if you would, if you try to frame this recidivism bill as critical race theory, I'm sure the vote would have been completely different, right? But, you know, it's looking at some of the systems. And I think that sort of stuff, these sort of steps, this sort of like collaborative work, you know, where Representative Christ Tompkins was able to sit down and be able to address, you know, in my opinion, some of the unfounded concerns about him, but nonetheless concerns with this bill. And, and and be able to navigate it through the process is a good thing, right? I think that is an example of a place where, you know, we can find it. And I wish there, you know, I, I hope that there are more. I know there are, are more places that people in the legislature are looking at this sort of work. And I think that sort of stuff, the more that we can be doing that, the better, right? Yeah. So what I what I hear you saying is yada 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 cooperation. If I want to stop a bill, I just need to call it critical race theory. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, it all wraps around. All right. Well, I I, I think we've uh, we covered a lot <sighs> of bases today. We've yelled we, enough today. You know, we talked about <laughs> kind of everything on my list. I think you know it's uh, I maybe before we go, I'd like to acknowledge that um, you know Kenai River. Representative uh, Gillum had a near fatal heart attack, and um, you know we're, I you know I think we're all pretty grateful that uh, he was able to survive that. It seems to have bounced back pretty well, but that was kind of one of those scary things. I think we kind of happens every session. We sort of have like a uh, you know there's 60 people in the legislature, and there's always some uh, harrowing thing where you kind of realize the like yeah all of our fragility yeah right? i mean that's the thing is you could be gone tomorrow right yeah. and i think you know we, you know cousins covering the legislature several le legislators have passed away and you know i think a lot of that you see around it too a lot of um kind of coming together and and remembering people for more than what they you know more than their political positions and i think right. that's kind of important to keep in mind here is that you know we are all much more than our our the, our political affiliation or anything like that and i think that's the sort of stuff that you know we talk about the problems with you know how do we address these problems with division right is is to try to remember that frequently you know we share much more in common with each other there's sort of a shared <laughs> we're, humanity we're, we're that humans? we should be yeah yeah we're humans <laughs> yeah 
We're all squishy. Yeah, we're all yeah, we are. We're all we're complicated, beautiful creatures. Uh, I don't know about beautiful. Well, I mean, some of us are pretty pretty good. (laughs) I don't know, but I yeah, I don't know. I think we're all we're all kind of trying to get through this and understand things, and I think that we're, you know, sometimes we're at odds, but that doesn't mean we always have to be. And so I I I like that stepping back and sort of thinking about other people's humanity and it's a yeah it's a good you know important thing to do it's important to 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 sort of you know approach situations with the grace that we would hope to be afforded in it it. and i think you know the recidivism bill you know the the day that somebody committed the crime that landed him in prison was probably the worst day of their life, right? And and, and yes, and a lot of them were creating a lot of pain in other people's lives that, that they should, you know, have to reckon with. But I think, you know, we need to remember that, you know, we don't know what other people are going through all the time. And I think it's important to have a little bit of grace with other people because you don't know what kind of day they might be going through. And well, I and think, if, we, if we had, if we had made a mistake like that, would we want a path to redemption or, or, right. you know, would we want a, a, a path to like make amends for mistakes that we'd made? And, you know, I think everyone's got something that they've, that they've done that they regret, whether it's just harsh words to a family member or, you know, whatever the, the thing is. podcast agreement yeah. they did with their buddy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I feel like there's, I feel like we've all got a little something that we're like working on and it's, it's important to give people that path back, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's our our episode (laughs) for the week. Uh, Goodbye, Alaska. Goodbye. Hello to you out there. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to support our work, you can find Matt Buxton at MidnightSunAK.com. He puts out a daily newsletter about what's going on in Alaska politics and the legislature, and it's just really great writing. Uh, and if you want to support my work, you can find me at Patreon.com slash Alaska Robotics. And that supports my time editing this podcast and doing a lot of other things like comics and watercolor paintings and things like that. So I really do appreciate it. And a big thanks to Marion Call, whose music we excerpted uh, for our theme song of our show. Uh, That comes from Real Alaskan Girl. Uh, Go check it out on Bandcamp.